Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. I'm Colette Bennett, Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know by now, we have three different types of podcast. Our seminar series is a look back at some of our conference and seminar presentations where you can hear from people like Anne Pettifor, Joe Larragui and Tony Fahey. Our 10 minute lesson series where we give a brief overview of a policy topic and this is meant to be a useful introduction to an area that we hope our listeners will find useful. And our interview series where we have a chat with experts on a range of policy areas. This is one of those. Today I'm joined by Brendan Ogle, Senior Officer with Unite the Union, on their recent report, Hungry Bellies Are Not Equal to Full Bellies. I hope you enjoy. Brendan, thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast. Welcome, Colette. Thank you for inviting me. Good stuff. So just to to go straight into it, I suppose, um, Unite recently published a report called Hungry Bellies Are Not Equal to, to Full Bellies. Um, and it looks very much at inequality and then some of the measures that have been put in place recently to try and address the kind of real experiences of inequality and deprivation. So just first of all, I suppose, why, why this report? What prompted you to do this? OK, well, there's, there's two really direct reasons and one third one that I might just touch upon at the end. But first of all, we became a, we, we were very concerned, obviously, as a trade union with a with a social and a political outward look. Um, we, we, we obviously were all about workplace representation, but we, we have a social and political outlook as well. That's the way Unite is. And we're, we work on an ongoing basis in a supporting role, mostly, with some of the NGOs, the volunteers, the charities up and down the country, um, working um, on the front line, on the streets and housing estates and homes, rural communities, dealing with deprivation and, and economic inequality. And particularly in the run up to Christmas, you'd be everybody's kind of more aware of everything in the run up to Christmas, you know, um, and around that time, there was um, reportage that we were becoming aware of in um, the Irish Times, um, RTE, um, broadcasted RTE website um, uh, from, from journalist Seamus Coffey, um, basically uh, not suggesting, but saying very dogmatically that inequality had fallen um, and stating it as a fact, uh, an unarguable fact. Um, so we're on the one hand sitting here uh, getting requests uh, and providing support to, to groups who seem to be in more and more need of that support. And I'm, you know, I go into various committees as the unions normally do and, you know, look for approval for this, that or the other. And there's more and more requests and we're aware of it. You have to walk around to be aware of it. And then you're reading this. So it, it didn't sit right, you know. Um, so we wrote, um, I wrote a looked into it, didn't make much sense. Uh, looked into Seamus's data uh, with Dr. Conor McCabe, who does some work with us, um, and wrote a rebuttal piece to the Irish Times, which uh, not only did they refuse to publish, but uh, uh, offered me an opinion piece, provided I didn't refer to their article, which I thought was extremely bizarre. So we went down a different road then, and we decided we'd, we'd, we'd put together a paper ourselves. Um, so we put together a paper, um, and I think a core part of the paper is first of all to look at the statistics as they were presented that's a core part of the paper but also to look at the lived experiences of people who are suffering from economic inequality and people who are suffering from deprivation and those who are providing assistance and we wanted to bring forward real life testimonies up-to-date testimonies current testimonies so we, we we spoke to six groups that we are familiar with um Inner city housing homeless, obviously, um, people in Dublin would be very familiar with the with the work they they do. Um, 
Spark, the Single Parents uh, Alliance Network, um, Penny Dinners in Cork. We spoke to a traveler outreach group, the Traveler Visibility Group in, in East Cork. Um, we spoke to the Muslim Sisters of Era, who are doing fantastic work, uh, mostly in the city of Dublin, handing out food um, to people who, who need food. Um, bizarre, uh, you know, I have to check myself even saying it, but that's what happens. Um, and also to uh, Belle Grogan is a, is a friend of mine and Belle Grogan does something every Christmas where she provides emergency relief in the form of Christmas hampers for the Christmas staples to some of the most uh, deprived uh, or, or, or needy, needy families and communities that there are and there's a huge community that, that assists with that. So we reached out to them and we said, listen, the Irish Times are saying inequality is falling, Seamus, and to say it's a fact, to say don't be listening to you guys. You know, um, can you tell us your own experiences? And 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 um, so the, so that's why we did it. We put together the paper. We went into to, to the data. Then the data makes no sense. Um, it turns out that the that, that Seamus's hypothesis, first of all, is solely about income inequality. Um, and that's fine. You know, income inequality is a, a an income is a is a useful thing to measure, but it's just one measurement. Absolutely. I mean, we would have published our sustainable progressing index last um, week, the 24th of um, February. And, you know, it, it shows just how badly Ireland is on, on a whole range of, of different indicators. So if you look at, you know, we, we base it on the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. And, you know, we're we're doing relatively badly. We're in the bottom heard in terms of the economy index we're all not too bad on the social index but again because of the way that the index is structured um, it has to go across the eu 15 and there's very limited data that will spread across the whole 15 so it's based on kind of education which we do relatively well with but then when you look at gender equality we do very very badly on um, and then obviously on the environment we're absolute last um, but you know that the types of when we go through all of that the types of indicators that are there are they go far, far, far beyond income inequality. Um, so it's just, I suppose, it's it's a it, it was a, another kind of context for me because I, I read the pieces you're talking about and obviously I read your report. Um, but just you know, not to have such a, a narrow definition of what inequality is or you know what those parameters are. Well, I suppose, yeah, absolutely. And look at if you want to measure income inequality. Measure income inequality. You know, go break a leg there. You know, but tell tell people that that's what you're measuring, um, and measure all of it. So when we dived into it, um, what we what we discovered, um, and Connor did this, did this work for us. Connor McCabe did this work for us. First of all, there are a number of measurements of income inequality itself. Um, the one that Seamus relied on to point to 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 a fall in overall inequality is what they call the Gini coefficient. And the Gini coefficient, you know, I'm not going to waste, spend too much time talking about the Gini coefficient, other than to say it's acknowledged by, by researchers across the world as underreporting incomes at the higher level. So the extent to which it is a, it is a, a, a rock solid measurement of income inequality uh, is questionable. It's a very small survey, about 4,000 people in Ireland, but it's, a, you, you know, you can do it for your brother, you can do it for your math, she's not in and all that sort of stuff. So it's very, very questionable. It comes with a, it comes even by the people who rely on it with a lot of health warnings. 
Um, and then there are other ways, of course, of measuring income inequality. And there was a recent report published by, uh, well, last year by the Revenue Commissioners that showed that the, the amount of money, the amount of income going to the top 1% of earners is increasing exponentially year on year. But that wasn't in the research. So they're relying on a measurement that underreports the higher income and they're leaving out a measurement that doesn't point out the fact that the top 1%, the, the earnings of the top 1% are growing all the year. And then there's a kind of a word kind of a play, whether it's accidental or whatever, we assume it's accidental, but there's a word play where, you know, they start off by talking about economic inequality. Then they only measure income inequality and they only measure one half of income inequality. And then, this, then, then they say, so economic inequality is falling again. And there's a word play. And of course, as you've just said, Kalesh, and, you know, I'm looking here across this corner of my eye at a table published by Task, and I accept that as a good guide. I think it's generally accepted as a good guide. They point to seven aspects of, income of economic inequality. They point to income as one. They point to wealth. They point to public services, to taxation to family composition, to capacities, the, the various abilities we all have. And that can go from, from you know, literacy to, uh, you, know, ex, you know, exclusion, um, educational exclusion. It can go to disabilities. It can speak to a lot of those issues. Uh, and then it talks about the cost of goods and services. Um, you know, so that's the whole, that's the whole bag. So if you're going to talk about income inequality, you know, talk about it all. And, and what really struck me about it, we all read newspapers, but what really struck me about this one wasn't just that somebody had an opinion and there was an opinion on which we disagree, because that's, that's the nature of having a, a free society where we have a right to express our opinions. But what struck me about it was the trenchant language in the reportage, that these were the facts, the facts weren't open to discussion, the facts weren't open to debate, um, and, and then it listed people, including trade unions, so that's me, and including people like you, Colette, and kind of said that we do an awful lot of moaning and groaning and we misrepresent the situation, but despite all of this, the facts are the facts and that's it. So it was kind of a dogmatism, nearly an authoritarianism in the way it was presented that didn't just sit right. Um, didn't sit right with our experience and didn't sit right with how it was communicated. And as, when we dug into it, didn't sit right with the data either. Yeah, I mean, having read those reports at the time, that was very much my view as well in terms of, well, you know, th I think there was a there was a quote um, it was either in that one or a subsequent one of everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but not everybody's entitled to their own facts. Right. Um, and certainly as somebody who looked at facts and data all day, every day, um, that I found that quite jarring because, again, like yourselves and like the report, you know, we look at data that shows a very different narrative, a very, very different picture altogether um, of where Ireland is. And yes, we are a very wealthy country. And yes, pre-COVID, we had a very, we, we you know, a, a, some would say thriving economy in terms of employment and in terms of GDP. But you look behind GDP and, you know, there's every commentator in the world is, is saying how many problems there are with that. Uh, so we don't really need to go into it. But also you look at, at things like the jobs, what types of jobs are there? What, you know, how precarious are they? Are they low paid? The over a hundred thousand people who are underemployed. So, you know, they have part-time work, but they're looking for, for more hours. And it doesn't, you know, so that one picture, you have to delve into it 
to actually see what's going on on the ground. Um, so, yeah, I mean, absolutely. In terms of, you know, when you just kind of look at the start, it was very much reported as these are the only facts, but they only show a, a small part of, of the overall picture when you look at inequality. Yeah, and 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 I'm just struck as obviously as you know I'm a, I'm a trade unionist and and um, I I remember um, back in the in the previous government the 2011 to 2016 government um, when Richard Bruton was we, we for shorthand we call him the Minister for Jobs because they keep changing the job the, the, the departmental titles and I can never keep up um, I find it hard enough to keep up with who is the minister and what their job title is this week but so we call him the Minister for Jobs. And he was the minister for jobs and um, the, the economy, we were told, was recovering. And, you know, and then it was we almost had full employment again then. And um, Richard was, you know, talking about all these, all the new jobs being created. I remember responding to him on one occasion saying to him, yeah, yes, um, I know there are a lot more jobs because I have members who have three jobs and still can't pay the bills. You know, um, we, we, we're, we're living, I, don't, I think you're in Dublin, Kelly, I'm not sure, but I'm in Dublin. I'm sitting in the middle of a city um, where someone on the medium wage can expect to spend up to half their income um, on putting, the, 64% actually, on putting the roof over their head. I'm sitting in a city where, you know, if you want to get a mortgage for a two-bedroom apartment, and not everybody wants to live in a two-bedroom apartment, but if you want to get a mortgage for a two-bedroom apartment, you're, assuming you're a couple, again, and there might people aren't always couples, but assuming you are, uh, you'll have to have an income or a shared income in excess of €120,000 a year just to get a mortgage for a two-bedroom apartment. Now, and I think this is why we reduced this to real lived experiences, um, I grew up in the 90s, I was born in the 1960s, look, a bit of grey coming there. Um, I grew up in Dundalk in the 1970s and 80s. Um, I grew up in, in, a, in, a, in a council estate. There were nine children in my, my family. Uh, it was a single income household. Uh, my father worked, uh, my mother worked, for, as, they say, as we say now, worked from home. Um, wasn't the language at the time, but that's what that's... And, and um, my father went through periods where he was unemployed. Um, we had everything we needed. We didn't have a lot, but we had everything we needed. We had a roof over our heads. We clothes on our back. We had school books. We were never short of a meal. We had a little holiday every year. It was only 30 miles up the road to Clarehead. We loved it. Um, we were very, very happy children. We had a very happy, happy childhood. On a single income, uh, income household with a very large family. You cannot do it now. You can't, they don't, there's a reason why we don't have, and it's not all, some of it's about lifestyle and some of it's about, about, about changes in, in, the way, in the way the world is. But it is, you, if you chose to have a family now of, of seven, eight, nine children, um, and you wanted to, to, to provide all the things I've just listed and have a comfortable lifestyle and, and access to education and all that sort of thing, what sort of income would you need? Yeah. So for somebody to present a situation that inequality is reducing, is bizarre. It's just bizarre. I ended up, Kelet, on a, on a, on a, a conversation uh, with Seamus himself yesterday, um, which was hosted by the journal journalist Michael Clifford. And of course, we ended up discussing him because I insisted on discussing things other than income. Um, how cheeky of me. Um, so we ended up discussing the housing emergency. I call it an emergency. Um, we ended up calling the, discussing the housing emergency. Seamus, I think Seamus is probably a few years younger than me, started telling me about what it was like in the 1970s and the 1980s. I was there, I remember. 
Um, but I'm looking at your own, some of your own research. I have a report here that was published in October 2019. Um, well, it's by the Jesuit Centre of Faith for Faith and Justice, uh, specifically looking at the housing uh, problem. And it talks about home ownership. And it says that home ownership, long-term policy, government policy, so we all know that, declined as a share uh, among the occupancies of heads. Some between 25 and 34-year-olds, it declined from 64%. 39% in 20 years from 1991 to 2011. Now, that's why when you walk around the streets, you've got volunteers out there with handing out tents, handing out food packages, handing out medical advice, sleeping bags. Um, that's why you've groups like Inner City Helping Homeless. That's why when I walk from my office to get a coffee. Well, you know, if there's a coffee shop open these days, um, I come across, you know, two or three people um, sitting in a doorway and asleep. That's why these things aren't happening because we're getting more equal. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. And, you know, we've done research around housing ourselves and, you know, we, we published a review the year before last of Rebuilding Ireland. And it showed that under every single pillar of the five pillars, there have been systematic failures across the board. We're, you know, up to COVID um, and the emergency response for COVID, we were seeing increasing rates of homelessness. And it's only because of the, the restrictions that have come in because of COVID that there's actually been a real impact. And that alone shows that when the will is there, the, you know, and the policies follow the political will, that you can actually manage a homeless crisis it's still not you know it's still not the rate that anybody would wish for we're still over eight thousand people but you know there there are there are policies that could have been implemented and at one of our conferences um in 2018 professor tony fahey he talked about the fact that you know this generation generation rent um they're they're you know one of the first generations going to be worse off than their parents when we've all we've all been raised with that. I mean, I I'm a little bit younger than you. I am the I'm a baby of the 70s, so I was 80s and 90s. Um, but you know, we were raised to expect better than our parents. They had better than their parents, and that's the way it should be. I hope that my kids will have better than than me. But we're looking at a society now where that's that's just not a given. Well, it isn't a given. And, and, and sometimes when I have conversations like this, people say to me, well, Brendan, why are you talking about, you know, where you grew up or why are you talking about your, a personal anecdote or a personal experience? And uh, as if, you know, you shouldn't do that in polite conversation. But I do it because, first of all, I usually people people I talk about usually don't mind, usually. Out once or twice, um, but generally speaking, I think real life experiences and what and what, what is is what it's about. Um, I've got two 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 children, uh, Colette, um, two 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 young women, um, one in in her early twenties and one who should be doing her leaving cert this year. We'll see how that works out. Um, and um, I'm aware of the environment that I grew up in, and I'm aware uh, I've described it there. I always had an aspiration to have a secure, well-paid job, not only an aspiration, an expectation. Mm. I always had an expectation that if I got married, and I subsequently did, that I would be able to afford to, put, to, 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 to have a family and put a roof over their head. I had an expectation. Uh, and I always had an expectation that I would be a bit better off 
than, than my mother and my father, who worked very hard to bring nine, nine of us into the world and, 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 and rear us. And those expectations have been met. No, and I'm not a rich person, but I'm not a poor person. Those expectations have been met. I can't say with any confidence that, that, that well, first of all, my children don't have that expectation. I can say that. They have a hope. But what my, what my, was my expectation is now but a hope to them and to me. Um, and um, for many, it's a forlorn hope. And I would suggest that there are people in our society, young people in our society, who, who it's no longer even a hope. Um, the, 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 the alienation um, is such that even basic things like a roof over your head, access to healthcare, access to three square meals a day, as they used to say, uh, and to be able to pay the bills and, 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 and is, isn't, is, isn't even a hope. Can't do it. Um, so, you know, and all I'm really saying is, and you made a comment earlier on, we're a rich country. There's a lot of wealth in the country. Absolutely there is. Um, we are, I suppose, what they, what they used to call a, a first world country. Um, and somebody else, somebody got on to me this morning on Twitter and they said, oh, are you, are you talking about communism? No, I'm not talking about communism. I'm talking about decency. I'm a basic human decency. I'm talking about just accepting as a society um, that people are entitled to expect the things I've just lifted, just I've just listed. You know, healthcare, access to education, a roof over our head, and food. If people aren't entitled to expect that, what sort of society are we? And yeah. um, what sorts of society are we with? You just walk down the street and every, every person you, you pass in the doorway. And I know some people turn their nose up and look away and, you know, oh, well, you know, they don't help themselves. You get all that crap going on. or They don't help themselves or, you know, they're, they're on this or they're on that or they don't do this or they don't do that. And a lot of judgment, awful lot of judgment, you know. Um, my view of that is, you know, um, it could happen to any of us. When I went to London in the 1980s, I used to I, I was being trained as a, as a as a railway person, and I used to I had been trained in Waterloo Station. And to get to my work, I used to have to go through the um, the tunnels underneath the station, where, which led to the underground. They called it cardboard city at the time. And I remember I just left Ireland as a 17 year old kid, and and I'd got a job and I was being trained. And I remember thinking, you know, that could very easily be me. I'm a, I'm about a, I'm about a, a paycheck away from that, you know, because if I can't pay the rent, and that's where people are now. Um, so look at when we and, and it got worse. You, you asked me there in an email earlier on to you know talk about the testimonies that we we have in the document and I listed the groups yep, there. You've, you've just jumped ahead of me there. I was just about to get onto it. If you could give me some of your testimonies back to your report. Well, yeah, inner city helping homeless uh, um, are. Um, they were set up in 2013, so five years into the austerity year. And Brian McLaughlin has given us some testimony. And what Brian has pointed out was, as the name would suggest, they were set up as a homeless charity. And that's still what they are. But they spend uh, an awful lot of their time now and an awful lot of their resources not providing homes, but providing food to people who have homes. And people are contacting them all the time and saying to them, um, 
well, you know, I have a flat or I have a, a, I'm on the HAP or whatever, um, but I haven't got food. So they do food parcels, hundreds of them every day. Uh, I had Tanya Ward on actually um, on a podcast recently, and she's the CEO of the Children's Rights Alliance. And she was talking about a piece that they did for uh, the No Child 2020 campaign. And Kitty Holland went across to, I think she said Finland, um, and they compared a nurse here, single mother, uh, but, you know, you know, decent job. Um, and the differences, you know, in terms of the, obviously the outgoings that she had in terms of her accommodation costs and her childcare costs, but she was making up the difference in terms of the food by going to food banks in yeah. Ireland. So the Irish nurse was going to food banks to, to feed her kids, whereas a very similar household in Finland, you know, they had a, 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 an expectation, as you say, of a far better life, a much more decent standard of living. Yeah, and, and there's an inverse thinking because, you know, a little bit of the conversation I had yesterday, you know, it was as if when I, I, I was talking about the, the degree to which people are forced onto the, 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 the support of the state or social transfers or whatever terminology you want to use, that was then being presented back to me as how we're such a generous country because we make so much readily available to people and how there are much less generous countries than us. Um, well, if that's the measurement in rich first world Ireland with the IFSC there half a mile away from me, with some of the richest corporations the world coming here because of all the things we have to offer. If that's how we're going to measure ourselves, um, then we're in a bad space. When we talked to Katrina Toomey of Penny Dinner's Cork, um, and we said, Katrina, you know, there's stuff in the Irish Times and stuff from Seamus, who's from Cork, um, saying that inequality is, is, um, is, is, is falling. What's, your, what's been your experience? She nearly fell off the chair. The title of the document, um, hungry bellies are not equal to full bellies was a quote that Katrina gave us in answer, in answer to that question. Um, and she pointed to the fact that in Cork City, she's providing, and Penny well, they're providing between 450 and 500 dinners a day. A day. Um, and, and she's been involved in it for many, many years, and it's the worst that she's ever seen. Um, we spoke to Louise Bayliss of single parents acting for the rights of kids. And um, Louise spoke to us, and the paper isn't specifically about the pandemic, but obviously, you know, we can't avoid it. Um, Louise spoke to us about the, the, the increased deprivation and, and, and alienation for single parents, um, parents, particularly of young children. Um, during the pandemic, you know, um, first of all, the cost of childcare is, is, is off the charts. We know that the cost of childcare, you know, in, in, in many countries in Europe that you would, that you would be measuring yourself, it can be 60, 70, you know, euro a week in, in, in some countries. In, in Ireland, you know, anywhere between 800 at the lower end, up to, depending on where you are, 1,500, 1,600 a month. Um, you know, a, a double mortgage, a double mortgage um, for anybody. Um, so, and then she told us that in the pandemic, you know, even going to the supermarket, you know, the child that didn't want children, the children would have been described as vectors. The, the people that didn't want them in the supermarket. There was nobody to look after the children. Um, uh, who do you leave them with? You know, you're not supposed to be sharing. And 
you know, and and she told, told one particular. Now we don't want to get bogged down on anecdotes, but they are impa- they are important. She told us she told us about one uh, one single mother who ha- who had a child, whose grandparents lived uh, lived lived in somewhere else in Europe, and you know the obviously the single mother was on social welfare, and the granny sent back um, an amount of money every month for a piano lesson for a child. And that was deducted, I think it was 60 euro. That was deducted by the department for the calculation of that parent's uh, social welfare payment. Um, It gets down to that level. Yet, yes, there's all sorts of issues about the taxation and even the counting and even how you how you how you measure the wealth of the of the top the richest people and and that's that's opaque that's completely opaque but when when they're dealing with with vulnerable people or poor people or single parents they'll get down to the level of taking the granny's piano payment off the child so they're the sort of testimonies. They're the sort of testimonies that we have. We also reached. We also spoke to a, a traveller outreach group, um, the Traveller Visibility Group from East Cork. And you know, obviously, there's institutional. Uh, say obviously, as if it doesn't matter. I'm sorry for saying it that way. It's horrendous. We have we have uh, institutional racism against travellers, of course, throughout the, the, the history of the state. But it's only when you when you when you when you really sit down. Um, Breed O'Donoghue, fantastic a, a woman, was was talking to us the other night. Vincent Brown hosted an evening for us, and and um, the test the people who give the testimonies were talking to Vincent, and we're talking about vaccines. Vaccines come up. I don't know how vaccines come up, but they come up anyway. And um, Breeda pointed out that um, it wasn't really an issue for her at the moment because they were they had only been vaccinating people uh, of eighty five and more. And now they were only vaccinating people of 65 or more. And she doesn't know anybody that's that old because within her community, the life expectancy is so low. Um, and when somebody says something like that to you and you think you're a progressive and you think you understand and you think you can't be shocked anymore, you know? Uh, and somebody said something to that, with you, to that to you. It's kind of puts you back in your chair now. Um, uh, what's going on? I seen Louise Bayless, who I mentioned a minute ago, tweeted the next morning that she didn't sleep that night. She couldn't get that image out of her head. Um, and you know, suicide rates among travellers, uh, traveller men, seven times the national average. Um, so what we wanted to do, uh, Colette, and thanks very much for giving us the opportunity to talk to you. What we wanted to do is is to you know, interrogate what had been presented as factual, which we don't believe is factual, but we wanted to bring forward those sort of testimonies in the same document. Um, And the other thing we wanted to do, and this goes to you as well, by the way, and to the people in Social Justice Ireland, and we can only do it in a small way. We're a a middle-sized union. We've got some resources, but limited resources. But we wanted to, to, to give testimony and pay tribute to the people who do the work day in and day out, to vindicate the work that's done, um, assisting uh, those who need help most in our society. Um, the Muslim Sisters of Era as well are doing amazing work, and they spoke to us at Lent as well. And we wanted to vindicate that work, because I, I could just imagine these, these, these people, you know, going in a soup run uh, or opening up their, 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 uh, their penny dinners uh, down in Cork, or Brother Kevin, uh, the, whoever, you know, um, any of them, there's hundreds of them, Focus, Simon, a whole lot of them. 
uh, all, almost all volunteers, giving of the best of themselves for a better society. And I can just imagine them picking up the Irish Times reading this and saying, what am I doing this for? Am I, am, is somebody telling me lies or something? Or am I imagining it? Or is it supposed to be like this? And, uh, and we just want to vindicate that work and, and basically thank people. Um, because they're doing it on all of our behalves. And, and, and if we can sp- play a small part in, 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 in helping to open up an honest conversation um, about where we're at, because as Pat Leahy himself said in that article in the Irish Times, there's going to be a cost, a financial cost to this pandemic. And it's going to be big. You know, the, the supports given to business to keep businesses open are correct. The, the, the social welfare payments, PUP or whatever you're having, given to keep people's the subsistence payments, because that's all they are, given people to keep people ticking over are correct, are absolutely correct. Um, the, the, the cost of vaccination is going to be, is going to be large. And when, when we hopefully we get through this and we all start reopening, there are going to be costs to that as well. And when the government sit down, be it this government, or probably be this government, I imagine, when they sit down to make the financial and political decisions in relation to who is going to carry that burden, we really want an honest discussion because we don't believe that burden can be put on the shoulders again of the people who can most hold it. You know, I hope it's not too political to say, I believe that's what happened in the financial crash in 2008. I believe the burden of that crash was put on the shoulders of those who could least afford it, young people under 25s so their social welfare cut to bits. Why? Make up your own mind, I think, because they don't vote, because the, the politicians didn't, didn't think they'd hold them accountable at the ballot box. So, so they got the social welfare payments cut. Um, I mean, we also saw cuts in public services. Yeah. And we know that it's the lower income households that rely most on public services. We saw branch closures across the board. And we know it's it's poorer communities that rely on being able to access, you know, a branch network, being able to have that local connection. Um, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we saw the impact of that. And it's, it's interesting that the OECD and um, there's certain sectors in the, the IMF um, have all come out and said austerity is not an option this time around. And it can't be an option this time around. And that's why I suppose looking at that narrative of, you know, well, inequality has fallen and we're all actually doing all right is so important because if we're all doing all right, then oh maybe it's it's not so bad mm. if if we're all paying a bit more for this or if we're all, you know, if we lose those services because we can privatize it. Um and it's really important to be able to actually look at that and say, well, no, the data, the experience, everything, it, it doesn't bear it out. Um, if you were to I suppose to look at from either your own or Unite's perspective in relation to what can be done about this, what would be your response to what we would see as, as growing inequality? Well, yeah, it is. Economic inequality is growing. Of that, there is no doubt. You can have an academic debate about the aspect of it that is income inequality, which is only a small aspect. And, you know, I can talk about the 1%, somebody else can talk about the genie, but there's no doubt that income inequality as a totality is growing. And I think anybody that suggests otherwise is not in the real world. We've got an Oxfam report now saying, you know, it's happening all over the world. The pandemic's increasing it. So what are the solutions? Well, I have to say this because I'm a trade unionist and I think it's relevant as well. And the paper does say this. We in Ireland have really, really poor trade union rights. And why is that important? It's important because, you know, work, what people earn for their labour 
is obviously a contributor to, to, to how they live their lives and how to provide for themselves and their families. And we've got really low trade union rights in terms of collective bargaining. It, you know, it, it's, it's a virtue of our constitution. Uh, our constitution puts private property rights um, above the common good. I'd put it as, as basically as that. You know, a, a, a mad anecdote that people might be surprised at. After lockdown one, uh, when, when the construction sector was opening up again, uh, and, you know, it was all talk about how is it going to open up and how is it going to be safe? You know, we have a lot of health and safety representatives and unions generally have. And, you know, we wanted the health and safety reps to have an input into whether the building sites and the building developers were, were in talks with the government and the trade unions and they were citing their property rights. We can't let the union health and safety right the people just turn up unexpected. That's an infringement of our constitutional property rights. That's how bizarre it is. So we need to do some, we need to do some some work on that, and I think nothing short of a personally, I think nothing short of a referendum on that aspect of the constitution in due course will will cover that. But look at in terms of the other issues, um, we've spoken a lot about housing. I grew up in public housing, you know the big debate. You grew up in public housing too, and we're, and we're fine, aren't we? We're okay, like we're grand. <laughs> and there was a big debate in in Dublin City Council on Monday about um, public housing and on the Oscar Trainer Road. And we've got public land. One of the, the small good things about the the crash was the state got a whole lot of land given to it. Um, it was a debt, but we got it. We have it. So you know, uh, I believe we should have more public housing. And that's not me saying. You know, we just need all public housing. And, you know, the talk, about, the talk about competition, where there's no public housing being built, there's no competition in the housing market. So what I want to see is to take on that competition challenge, take that capitalist gauntlet into my hand here and say, you want competition? Okay, let's have some public housing and let's have some, uh, some, some private, privately built housing and that will drive down the cost. That will that that will that in itself will drive down the the the, the price to, to buy of the private housing, I believe, and provide social support for those in public housing. Um, look, at, as I said, I've spoken about childcare. That's a huge issue um, for 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 families with of with, with school going children. Uh, the health service. We we woke up one day last year, uh, and we discovered we we've suddenly got a single tier health system. Um, unfortunately, it happened in a pandemic. Um, so it took a pandemic for them to do the right thing. Um, we've seen uh, in, in past years various politicians, and I won't politicise this by naming them, but we've seen various politicians pointing to, this, pointing to the fact that, we need, that they need to actually underinvest in the public health system in order to encourage people to take up private health care. And if the private health care system was as good as we would all want it to be, then, or the public one, I'm sorry, then the private health system wouldn't, wouldn't exist. It wouldn't be attractive to people. So you can see what, what's going on there. Listen, this is about health. We, we need a single tier health system free at the point of use. And, and it's available to us based on whether we're sick or not, not based on whether we've got money in the bank or not. Um, and that, 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 that I'm, I'm aware there might be people listening or watching this who say, that's nearly a revolutionary thought. And I would say to you, I would say to those people, what has the world come to where, you know, getting access uh, to a doctor or to an operation or to a scan um, based on whether you need it to the complete exclusion of whether you've got money or not um, and based only on that is a, is a revolutionary idea? 
what have we what have, what have we come to? So I would I would argue I would argue along those lines. We need so I'm not saying you know we need some sort of Marxist nirvana. That's I'm not arguing for that. But if the things that we all need to just exist, the roof over our head, healthcare, education, food, heat, if those basic staples um, were secure. And if the people who represent the public good, and I would say in work, that's trade unions, um, had equal rights. We don't need North Korea stuff here. The sort of rights they have in Germany, the sort of health system they have in France. If we could just have some of that. Tax justice, perhaps. Where, you know, if somebody is a a millionaire or a billionaire, um, we don't want all their money. Well, no, we don't. If somebody is a millionaire or a billionaire, did they just pay a percentage of tax proportionate to what somebody on 30 or 40 or 50 or 60,000 pays and that there aren't 100,000 loopholes where they effectively pay nothing, where the richer you are, the less a percentage you can pay. And it seems you can be so rich that you pay literally nothing. You know, so a campaign around tax justice, not based around picking on rich people, based around human decency. Um, I think those solutions... They all happen in my lifetime, uh, Colette. But I think that's what we should be advocating. And the last thing I'd say, and I was talking to Jed Nash earlier on, um, we had a call about the paper and and, and the Labour TD. um, And I think, you know, Jed pointed it. I remember on board SNP. You remember on board SNP NUA. And Jed is afraid that we're going to have on board SNP NUA NUA because he's been having a couple of meetings with the people in the Department of Finance about how we're going to pay for this pandemic, which causes him concern. And what I would say to, 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 what I said to Jed and Jed said to me and what I think we all need to do is if we can find some sort of common language um, that we use, because a lot of it's in the language, you know, economic inequality, equality, who knows the difference anyway, you know, if we can find some common language to those of us who don't agree on everything, but those of us who just want a kind of level of human decency uh, across all of society, um, we don't have to all join each other's club or each other's party or each other's union or each other's group, but we just have a common purpose and a common language. Uh, and we kind of just move incrementally forward together instead of, you know, this kind of trying to steal a march on each other. It goes on a lot uh, in the left. In unions, it goes on. In politics, it goes on. I think it would help. Uh, if we could all just, we don't have to sign a treaty or anything, but if we could all just use common language um, and, and, and advocate with respect with each other for a better country, you know, who knows, we might just get there. Well, on that, that's a, a very nice place to, to finish up, Brendan. Thank you very, very much. Um, and certainly a lot of what, what you reference is kind of similar to what we talk about when we talk about a social contract, about, you know, having those, you know, Yes, we want a vibrant economy. We're not saying that we shouldn't have a good economy. But, you know, part of that is providing for decent services and infrastructure, things like health and childcare and education and transport and broadband and all of those things. We want it on the basis of a just taxation system where those who have pay. Um, we want it on the basis that it's it's actually sustainable and that it's based on, on talking together, that it's based on a, you know, good governance structures that involve dialogue where people actually get to sit around a table 
and thrash things out. It's not about, as you say, everybody having to agree with everybody, but, you know, even just to be able to have that debate, to be able to tease things out and then that those decisions are sustainable and that they, you know, they look after the future as well. You know, when we, when we talk about, you know, your children are older than mine, but we talk about their futures and we talk about, you know, what what's going to be in it for them. You know, if yours only have hope, what are mine going to have? Um, so it's 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 really about all of those those key things. But I'll I'll leave you on that note. So thank you so so much, Brendan, for for your time today. Thank you very much, Gina. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you want to check out our proposals for building a new social contract, it's available on our website www.socialjustice.ie. As always, if you have any ideas or suggestions for our podcast please do let us know by emailing us at secretary at socialjustice.ie. Until next time, stay safe.